Show Up and Stay podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Nate, and we are going to redirect our conversation a little bit to ask Nate to give us a little more insight into who he is and his background and what led him to the work that he's doing now and all of the good things he's putting out into the world. Well, it's wonderful to be back, Dan. Thanks for having me on again. I love your show. And I just want to say you are giving back in a big, big way. And I, on behalf of all your listeners, want to just thank you and say, I know this is a labor of love and it is very, very appreciated. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I guess just a brief kind of like snapshot of my journey to sobriety. So for as long as I can remember, I experienced depression and suicidal ideation, but I didn't actually take my first drink until I was 18 years old, which is kind of late for some people. However, I can remember that first drink really vividly because it was like finding the thing I'd been searching for my entire life up to that point. I pretty much drank alcoholically from the start and it was really fun for a while and it it served its purpose for maybe about six years um, without me having any real consequences. But then as it does, my drinking definitely escalated over the course of the next 10 plus years, um, you know, totaling 16 years of drinking. And so I got my first driving under the influence conviction at age 24 and my second one at age 25. So I, uh, I sacrificed a marriage for alcohol. I ping-ponged in and out of jail, treatment, psych wards, just continually until I was finally able to find lasting recovery. And I, I tried and failed to get sober for a little over a decade. So, and this is like actively trying to get sober, but just not able to. And then finally at age 34, after another driving under the influence conviction, I was finally able to get sober and stay sober because staying sober is the hardest part, right? I mean, I had a friend of mine in recovery tell me, if you want to get sober, it's easy. You just go up and you punch a cop in the face and you'll be sober for a while. But the staying sober part is the hard part. So so I've been sober since January 20th, 2011. That's just a little over 11 years for me. And um, when I was one year sober, kind of rewinding back, it took me a whole year to finally be functional enough to hold down a steady job. My mentor in recovery at the time told me that my first year of sobriety, I needed my full-time job needed to be recovery. So because I had this habit of getting sober, getting things back, including the job, the girl, the starting to feel good physically, and then I would relapse, right? So he told me, you know, you need to work on your program for a year before you can do anything else. So after a year, I I got a steady job as a janitor on a college campus. Um, So nothing prestigious, but it was perfect for me at the time. 
when I was two years sober, I actually went back to school on the college campus where I was cleaning toilets. And I completed a certificate program that allowed me to become a licensed substance use disorder counselor. And so I worked as a substance use disorder counselor for about six years before I decided to go back to school yet again and pursue a master's degree in social work. So right now I'm about two months away from graduating with my master's and taking the licensing exam to become a licensed clinical social worker in addition to a substance use disorder counselor. So if everything works out, I'll be able to do therapy with people suffering from mental illness or those co-occurring disorders, which you mentioned in an earlier episode, in addition to those with addictions, which is good because addiction and mental health issues are definitely bedfellows. And actually, yesterday, I signed a two-year contract to step into a position after graduation as intensive outpatient program director with a local treatment provider called Red Willow Counseling and Recovery. Maybe you've heard of that organization. I may or may not have. Congratulations. I love that. I'm super excited. So anyway, my life is blessed beyond belief these days, and all of it is a direct result of my recovery for sure. I'm going to probably take us a little off track again, but I do want to talk about this co-occurring piece. In in my experience too, I don't have a, a family history of, of alcoholism, but I do have depression in my family. And like my story when when now, as I look back, everything started with depression and anxiety. And it goes back to even eight, nine years old. And it was just something that was pervasive for me for a good portion of my teenage years. I obviously it was the water I swam in. So I didn't realize it. The only reason I realize it now is that I can start to look back objectively and go, that was always a huge issue for me. And then you introduce the alcohol on top of it, like you said, and it became sort of the way that I felt like I could survive. And I know that you and I are not alone in that, that that is a massive part of the issue in the sense of we have a culture that a lot of the things that we do and, and perceive as fun are centered around the use of alcohol. But what I have a lot of you know, passion about is the fact that, yeah, that, that's true and, and it can be fun. But then for a lot of people who maybe go into that with something else, whether it be mental health or genetic predisposition, can enter into the same situation as the other people who are just having fun and end up in a completely different endpoint as a result of that. And what is so fascinating and what I would love to hear from you about is from a treatment standpoint, there are places where both things are treated, but in a lot of cases, the alcoholism can often be looked at as almost like a completely separate issue, which for me is so hard to put my head around because how can it be? They're so intricately entwined. Yeah, I I definitely relate to your experience. I experienced, like I said, daily suicidal ideation from a very, very young age, even though I actually had a wonderful childhood. I'm from a big family of five siblings, and my family, um, many still are involved in the Mormon religion. My parents have never drank alcohol, never used drugs their whole life. Same, same, same. I'm the youngest of five kids. 
family still involved in the Mormon religion. My parents never drank. Wow. <laughs> I don't know, Nate. That's crazy. It is. There is this thing that I think, I don't know, maybe some people have heard in the rooms of recovery that drinking and drug use is a symptom of something else. So it's a way of coping in a lot of ways with how I feel maybe on the inside. So for me, I also experienced like deep, deep depression for a really long time. And you're right in that. So this is, this is the tricky part that you pointed out. So those things are inextricably connected because they're existing in my body. My one body has depression, addiction, right? Those are interwoven with each other. But I also need to treat both of those things simultaneously. I think part of the mistake that we've made in treatment historically has been Let's just focus on the depression and then the addiction will work itself out. Or let's just focus on the addiction and the depression will work itself out. And that's not necessarily all the case. So if we really want to treat a whole person, we need to look at everything going on with them, including uh, mental health stuff addiction stuff and biomedical stuff, any kind of medical issues, because those can also factor in. So you mentioned the genetic component. There's at least 90 genes that we know of that are associated with addiction, and some are tied to specific substances. Some are associated with multiple substances, but essentially the more of these genes you have, the more at risk you are for addiction. So you know, in my case, my my mom says, you know, if if she had ever drank or used drugs, she probably would have become addicted because, you know, maybe she's got those genes and passed those on to me. And, and in other ways, uh, I would say that her some of her behaviors are addictive in nature. Her addictions are pretty healthy ones, but I can see those tendencies for sure. I would say the biggest one that's associated um, co-occurring with addiction is trauma. Any traumatic experiences. And when I say trauma, people generally think of like big T trauma, um, sexual assault or going through a natural disaster or big, big, big stuff like being in war and witnessing atrocities. But there are a lot of small T traumas that occur throughout our lives that we don't recognize as such. So for instance, when I was about 14 years old, I made the decision to leave the religion I was raised in. And I think in retrospect, that threw me into sort of an identity crisis that lasted for many, many years. So it's definitely possible that that could have had something to do with my alcoholism. I'm not sure, but my family's always been supportive of me, even through the darkest of times. So I'm really lucky. I put my parents through a lot during my addiction, but they always continued to love me in spite of the pain I was causing. And I feel really fortunate because a lot of people don't have that kind of support system. But I would challenge anybody with addiction to just look into your past a little bit and do some soul searching and look at 
did anything happen that could be considered traumatic? And in all likelihood, there's something there. In my sense, um, I'll say that I also left the religion of uh, my upbringing, which is a very all-inclusive situation, right? It's your life. It's your social scene. It's it's kind of everything. And And when you make that move out of it, what happened to me is I did that from a very rebellious place. And I never did any of the work until literally the last few years to really recalibrate my value system. It was almost like I left what was my moral code and left it by the wayside and said, moral codes aren't for me. And then went out into the world, just trying to attach myself to different things that ultimately were outside of me that never ended up bringing me any sort of comfort, hoping that they would dictate who I should be in the world. It wasn't until I was 40 years old that I actually did the work to go, oh, wait a minute. There are some things about how I was raised that I absolutely believe and want to be a part of my life. And then there are some things that I feel differently about that I can integrate into this person that I am now and realize that I'm okay. And that has been massive for me in terms of what I feel like a long-term recovery path. I needed that part of that. And that didn't happen for me until a year and a half into my sobriety. I'm really relating a lot to, to that because pretty much the exact same thing happened to me. I didn't, I, I was sort of in no man's land for a long time as far as values go and purpose. And I was wandering kind of lost for a long time and doing the same thing that you did, attaching myself to relationships that I thought would be my identity, my purpose, only to find out like, that's not really what I want. Or I just had no, no compass, you know, until I, I found recovery. And then I was challenged to find out what, what values do I have? And I found the same thing. I, a lot of mine align with childhood upbringing and the way that I was raised and a lot of them don't. I'm very comfortable now with the value system that I have, but I think it's really important to do some of that soul searching in early recovery because addiction by nature causes us to do things that go against our value system in a lot of cases. And so reconciling that can be really powerful. Yeah. And if you're rejecting the good and bad paradigm, but you still have it internally inside of you, then what's happening is this subconscious self-loathing essentially. Yeah. I didn't realize what was going on because, or that I had still some value system because it was covered up by alcohol. I would just have alcohol poured all over the top of it and I couldn't see it. So. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're alone in this, Nate. I think there is something to look at in recovery there. And like you said, it doesn't always have to be big things or things that you would identify as big that require a lot of work to undo. There is trauma tied to abusive relationships, of course, but so often we talk about physically abusive, but there's also trauma from obviously being emotionally abused over a period of time. And you may not even know you're being emotionally abused. You may actually think that that's just how people engage with each other. And you have to like really step back and go, oh, I was experiencing trauma over a long period of time. It's not this acute thing. It, it can be these microcosms that are like adding to a bigger picture. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that would be like clinically speaking, complex trauma that some stuff that happens 
repeatedly over time as opposed to I got into a really bad car accident one time. And I'll, I'll, I would add to that that just being addicted in itself is traumatizing. So, I mean, just, just, just having to lie and having to hide it and having to do what we have to do to continue self-destructing, that in itself is traumatizing. So I, I just think a lot of us do have that common experience of just one trauma after another. And the culmination of that is too much to deal with on an emotional or any kind of level. And so let me find something that will help me escape that or numb out. You have such an interesting perspective, obviously, being someone who has seen yourself through your own recovery path, but also been able to witness people in their own experiences as well. And so I think it gives you this unique viewpoint. Maybe if we could just close up, if there's major takeaways that you've had in your work. Um, Yeah. So I think in early recovery, there's a bunch of things to consider. As I mentioned, it's vitally important that it was to me that I find community in early recovery. So it's pretty rare that people recover alone. So I would say one of those things is finding meaningful human connection early in recovery in ways addiction is a disease of isolation so it's even isolation when i'm surrounded by people so part of the antidote for addiction is to have honest vulnerable meaningful human connections with people who care so finding your people and feeling comfortable enough to connect i would say Also, don't rush things. Just slow down. I think as creatures of immediate gratification, we have this unreasonable expectation that things should be get better immediately after we get sober. So just imagine the amount of time that you spent in active addiction and ask yourself, is it reasonable to undo those damages to your body, brain, and life? in 30 days or 60 days so in my case you know i was in my addiction for 16 years so it wasn't reasonable to believe that i could reverse all that damage in a matter of days or weeks or months it took some time and some patience which is really tricky as we discussed for those of us in recovery i would also suggest looking at sobriety as a gift that you're giving yourself and the things that you'll gain as a result, rather than looking at sobriety as an experience of deprivation on what what we're being forced to sacrifice by getting sober. I think if you focus on sobriety as an exercise of deprivation, it makes, I don't know, it makes me want to get loaded even more because it's, it's like, oh, my, all the fun of my life is now over. I made a mistake early in recovery when I was I was a chronic relapser for a long time. So I made the mistake of focusing on what I'm not supposed to do, like drinking alcohol. So I would think I got to stay away from the bars and I got to stay away from the liquor store and I got to stay away from beer and hard alcohol. And what I didn't realize is that my brain doesn't hear the word no. 
when I'm saying those things to myself, the images that are going through my head are bar, liquor store, booze, you know, and that's, that's like unintentionally I'm focusing on the thing that I am trying not to do. So I would say one of the hacks would be focus on what you're going to do or what you're doing rather than what you're not. We, we are in essence rehabilitating the hedonic system of our brain. So part of that is having fun in early sobriety. What happens is as substances overstimulate our brain, there's this numbing that occurs in part of the brain's reward pathway called the nucleus accumbens, which is one reason tolerance happens to the substance. But our body has, it's always trying to reach homeostasis or balance. So when the pleasure response center of our brain is continually overstimulated, it compensates by turning down the volume on all stimulation. So basically our brain starts to numb itself and it actually makes us less sensitive to all types of stimulation. So normal activities that were once pleasurable, like seeing a friend or playing a sport, reading a book, um, going out on a date, those are less and less pleasurable until eventually the substance becomes the only way to feel good. And that's called anhedonia, which is an inability to feel pleasure. But again, going back to the neuroplasticity of our brain, the dopamine system can heal itself if we just provide it the right opportunities and sort of create the conditions for a normal hedonic tone. So um, the first step is to remove that repeated insult of intoxication. And then once we stop that, essentially the large spikes of dopamine that are occurring through the use of the substance, then we need to create joy in our lives without introducing chemicals into our bloodstream. So that uh, normal dopamine releases happen and they happen through naturally pleasurable activities. So as as strange as it may sound, um, a big part of early recovery is practicing pleasure, engaging in healthy, rewarding activities in order to help that hedonic rehabilitation to occur. If any of the listeners have been to inpatient treatment settings, they might have gone on recreation therapy groups that there's a reason for that if you're experiencing if you're in early recovery and you're experiencing the blah everything's kind of bland it's literally because your brain's been damaged so ask yourself what are you going to do to make your recovery enjoyable or even pleasurable i remember during certain periods of sobriety again i thought the fun's over. I need to be really serious about this. I need to be hyper-focused. I need to fix my life. And then I'd relapse and I think, what well, what happened? I was trying so hard, you know? So I would suggest those in early recovery, just lighten up. Don't be so serious. You need to schedule time to be playful and experience merriment. And you need to do that like your life depends on it. Even if nothing feels fun in the beginning, what happens over time is eventually you'll crack a smile and then you'll find yourself chuckling and getting excited about certain activities. And then over time, the world will look a little less gray and pretty soon you'll laugh a little bit 
And once you're laughing a lot, then you'll know that your brain's on the faster track to recovery. I definitely agree. You know, for me, the types of things that popped the bubble for me a little bit, and I didn't even realize it was craft stuff, beads and colorful paper and pens and just making something. And I didn't care what it looked like. There was something about that activity. It's like a little bit, it feels like being a kid again, right? It was cutting down and cutting away this exterior I had built of having to be good at everything that I do and just digging into something like that felt really freeing. And obviously there's other ways to recreate, but for me, I found that to be really great. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's both a mindfulness activity and it's kind of like you said, tapping into your inner child and just enjoying something for the sake of enjoyment, you know? I don't know about you, but if if recovery isn't enjoyable and fun, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Exactly. Who's going to sign up for that? Not everything works. You know, I tried things that didn't work and I had to get over the fact that that was just part of the process, right? Like, okay, you know, that's okay. Not everything is going to hit. This has been so great. I just enjoyed just talking to you anyway. I don't even care if this ever is a podcast that anyone else hears because this was good for me too. It's funny, every time kind of leading up to my anniversary date, I do get in a little bit of a funk. And I always try to figure out if it's a self-fulfilling thing or not. But honestly, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, but I can't really answer that. But I do always get a little bit funny around that time. And so this was just a really nice cathartic thing that I think I needed today. So thank you for that. Good. Likewise, I very much enjoyed this. And congratulations again. Three years is uh, such a an amazing accomplishment. I mean, just take a second, take a beat to just acknowledge that and celebrate that. Uh, hopefully you can do something fun or something enjoyable or celebrate yourself in some way because yeah. it's a big deal. All right. Yeah. Craft. I need to go to Michael's to the craft yes. store, get some beads and make go something. Get some beads. Thank you very much. I appreciate this. And I um, think we'll, we'll talk soon. I know we will. And congratulations to you on everything that's happening for you. Thank you. And yes, I look forward to talking again, Deanne. And you're a beautiful person. And just keep being you. Thank you. Thanks, Nate. Find your purpose in life. Explore what will make you feel fulfilled in your existence on this planet while it lasts. Figure out what you're going to do with the rest of it and make it something that you're passionate about. And again, that might be something that takes time and exploration to discover. But I promise, I promise it'll be worth the time and the energy. information on the show up and stay podcast please visit our website at showupandstay.org 